You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome. You're listening to the Golf Under Par podcast. As the title suggests, on the Gov, we talk about all things relating to golf performance so you can golf under par. While listening, you'll hear discussion on all facets of golf, physical, mental, and whatever else will make you a better golfer. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. I'm a golfer myself, as well as a physical therapist and strength coach. Let's take this journey together to golf under par. Thank you for listening. Now let's dive in. Welcome, guys, to the Golf Under Par podcast. Your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. I have Ben Shear here with me. He's a strength coach. He's one of the, we'll say, OGs of golf fitness, right? And he kind of started a lot of this back before it was popular, before Tiger really even started it. Uh, he's the owner of Ben Shear Golf, and he's also an advisor for Golf Digest. So you may have come across his name in some of the things or at least gotten some of his advice Along the along the rounds, if you're interested in this realm, so thank you so much for for being on here, Ben. Hey, Jeremy, thanks, pleasure, pleasure, and uh, excited to be here with you. So I always start asking everybody, kind of, what got you into golf? Uh, interesting question. Is I'm not really a big golfer, to be honest. As crazy as that may be, like being one of the foremost guys in the golf world, I'm not a huge golfer myself. I always trained athletes. You know, I've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, I started training athletes in 1991 before that was even kind of a thing. Um, and what I quickly learned was, A, a lot of professional athletes didn't live by me. And B, college kids are only around in the summer. And C, high school kids are only available in the afternoons. And that was not a really good business model. <laughs> um, very limiting from a from an income potential. So I said, hey, you know, I'm not really interested in doing general fitness so much. Uh, I like people who have more of a performance goal, who, what populations are out there of people who A, have a performance goal, B, can afford my services, and C, can fill up the times that I am now available and have, you know, to sell. And so I can earn a living and support my family. So golf quickly fell in that bucket. Uh, The country club sports, I did a bunch of tennis and golf and stuff like that. Being a really science-oriented guy, I went and started studying a lot about golf and golf biomechanics and pressure and 3D and force plates and all of that cool stuff. And I quickly realized, wow, there's some really cool, interesting science in golf. And I found it pretty exciting and interesting to get involved with. Type of guy I am, I started calling around and talking to some of the people doing research. And all of a sudden, I was like in the middle of the hub of the biggest people doing golf research in the world. All of a sudden, they were asking me from an application standpoint, like, what did I do with their research? And how did I help people get better? And you know, here we are, I don't know, almost 30 years later, uh, I've become one of the, you know, guys doing this, like you said, one of the OGs of this. Started with my first tour player in 1998, uh, so really long time ago. And really, I've just continued on that same path of trying to learn and get better and learn from other smart guys and share what I do with them and vice versa. And hope we can kind of continue to move uh, the needle for golfers from a physical perspective uh, forward. And, you know, it's fun because I have everything from a large juniors academy of players that we run through at our facility to businessmen's to obviously I work as well with a bunch of PGA Tour players, European Tour players, you name it. So, you know, I, I think what's cool about my experience is that, you know, a lot of guys are on tour. All they do is tour players. And sometimes their advice for the general population isn't really good advice, to be honest. It's like, nah, that applies to tour players, but not this, you know, 55-year-old guy who sits behind the desk. Well, I also train the 55-year-old guy who sits behind the desk. We train 15-year-olds. We train them all. And I kind of think I've learned over the years kind of what really applies to whom versus kind of saying, oh, this is golf fitness. Well, golf fitness for a guy who sits behind a desk 50 hours a week is not the same with golf fitness for a PGA Tour player or a 15-year-old female or whatever. It's just a different world every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd be curious, kind of what are some of the changes that you've seen over the last, we'll say, 30 years uh, with with how golf fitness is? Well, I mean, golf fitness wasn't even a thing then. Right. Like 
golf fitness is now an industry. I mean, obviously we can thank uh, Greg Rose and Dave Phillips in large part for that by creating TPI. I mean, I was friends with Dave and Greg before <laughs> there even was TPI um, because, you know, we were the people in the industry doing it back then. Um, but, you know, they've turned it into an industry where lots and lots of people like yourself are now doing it. You know, there's a medical component, the golf instructor trying to tie the body together with the swing and all that stuff. And, you know, I think that what Dave and Greg have done is create an industry. Um, you know, while, while I, I love some of their stuff they do, I don't agree necessarily with all of it. Um, you know, we all owe them a debt of gratitude for creating an industry and a place for all of us to work. Um, and I think that's really cool. I mean, to create an industry is cool. Very few people, you know, have been able to do that type of thing. And, you know, the media press that they've gotten from it, the amount of people they've certified, the awareness that they've created uh, is incredible. So, you know, the change, the change is, look, we can all still debate what golf fit, good fitness is or is not and what's good for certain people and what is not. Um, I, I think luckily, I think I've done pretty well with that. And that's what allows me to be where I am. Um, but the biggest change really is people are doing it. Regular people are doing it, not just tour players, amateurs, people with back pain, people who just want to hit it farther, people who want to enjoy the game more, people who you know know they need to be fit for their health. And maybe that's not motivating enough to get them in the gym. But if it can help their golf game, you know, I say I do a lot of general fitness with a golf twist. Right. They're guys who just need to be healthy, know they need to do workouts. But if we can give it a little bit of a golf twist and can help their golf game, that's what motivates them to get in the gym. And that's a great reason to do it as well. So I I think we now have this big, broad spectrum of the best players in the world all the way down to the guy who's like, man, my doctor told me I need to exercise and eat right. And that just doesn't motivate me. But if I can hit my drives further and at the same time makes my doctor happy, wow, that's a win. Right. I think that comes down to knowing who's in front of you. Right. So. Correct. Yeah. So you mentioned you have this large academy for juniors. I'd love for you to kind of just talk a little bit about, you know, how's how's it set up? What what kind of success have you guys seen with your your academy? Yeah. So interestingly, obviously, our academy this year, we're hoping we're going to actually be able to run uh, due to what's going on with coronavirus is here in New Jersey. As of right now, the only thing we can do is one on one training. Uh, I have a seventy five hundred square foot building. We can only have one person for, per designated area. So we have three people in the building at once at 7,500 square feet. So the interesting thing, I guess, from that side is we are working on developing an online version of it, like Golf Fitness Academy, that kids from anywhere in the country, if they want to join, will be able to hop into, which is pretty cool. Like they'll get one-on-one Zoom workouts with us. We have some group stuff that they'll be part of. We're finalizing all the details. We don't have it totally dialed in yet, but we're obviously preparing that realistically we may not be able to do what we've done in the past. And so while that's a negative, at the same side, maybe we can now expose and be able to help more kids around the country get involved, which would be very cool. Um, So but typically what we do is being in New Jersey, obviously, I don't know where you're located, but here in New Jersey, we don't have great golf weather all year. Um, You know, come October, November through the end of March, there's not a lot of golf going on. It's cold. It's dark early. It's. It's not ideal. And, you know, we had a lot of kids that we were working with who were really trying to take their golf very seriously. And I've been an advisor at like the full where people live academies. And I'm not a big buyer into that. I don't think that that works. Um, I My little small academy in New Jersey has probably turned out more D1 players than most of those academies have if you relative to time and volume of kids. I think that really just toasts a lot of kids, to be honest. But so we, we wanted to look at what can we do for kids in New Jersey, indoors, um, to help them compete with the kids who live in Florida and California and Texas and Arizona and all these places where they obviously get an opportunity to do it. And so obviously we can't allow the golf courses to be open and everything to be great here. So we said, look, we can make our kids physically better. We can be physically superior to those kids. We can take a part of our year and say, okay, we're not going to, not that we're not going to care about golf. We are, but we're going to take fitness and make that our priority. And we are going to get stronger, more mobile, faster, hit it farther, do all of those types of things while these other kids are still outside hitting balls 50, 60 hours a week all year long and doing the bare minimum with their physical training. So, well, we, our basic academy is kids come in groups of eight. They come for a two hour block. We break them up into two groups of four. Four kids are doing fitness 
They're all on their own individualized program. We evaluate everybody in the beginning. They're on their own individualized program, right? And then we have a trainer down with them going around teaching them, overseeing what they're doing. Um, so there's there's four of those. And then we that's downstairs in our weight room area. And then upstairs in our building, I have a cage where we have track man. I have an indoor putting green. I have a place to do chipping, all that kind of stuff. So there's four kids upstairs. I do not get involved in golf instruction. We have a golf professional there to oversee it, but we kind of call what we do guided practice. So I have lots of great drills and all kinds of stuff from a lot of the coach, the best coaches in the world that I've worked with on tour, whether it be putting drills for speed or line or chipping drills or whatever. I invite any of them to have their golf professional join us if they would like to. No charge on my part. Your golf professional wants to come join in. That's between you guys. I'd love to have them. I'm all open for that. But I do have a golf professional. If somebody's really doing something wrong, we want to be able to say, hey, look, you know, we're way off track here. We need to be or if someone has a question, we want to do it. But we're not looking to be their coach. So they have a guided practice session for that hour that involves some full swing, some chipping and some putting every single day. Right. Or every day that they're coming. So then they like I said, four kids working out, four kids doing golf after an hour, those kids flip flop uh, and do the opposite. We've had, you know, so we have a whole evaluation process in the beginning. The drills are specific, not to all of them. Some are general, but some are specific. And then even on some days, we're just having chipping contests. We're having putting contests. So they'll play like the old basketball game of horse where you pick a shot and everybody has to match it. We'll do that with putting. And so it keeps them in a competitive mode as well. So even though we're not doing that every time, we have them compete against each other and we typically break the kids up based on comparable abilities. So if eight kids come, you're paired up with these people who are similar to you. You're paired up with these people who are, who are not. And I mean, it's really been in, an incredible thing. I mean, we have, you know, I don't know how many kids currently, probably 10 or 15 kids currently playing division one golf. You know, I'm a big believer that golf should be something they use to help to go to a better academic school. Uh, and you use it as a vehicle. I mean, yeah. Do we have a couple girls who maybe can make the LPGA tour? Maybe. Um, we have girls, you know, who, I mean, one of our girls at Yale University who could have gone to other schools for bigger golf, but she went to Yale for the education. You know, she was rookie of the year and player of the year in the Ivy Leagues. You know, we have, you know, players who are first team all, you know, Big Ten at, at schools like Northwestern. So you're competing against, you know, we have top, top kids all over. And then we have lots of kids obviously playing D3 and smaller schools and all over the place. We have kids who have, you know, are trying to, one kid actually emailed me just before this, who's now turning pro, who was in college, who's now out of college, kids in Notre Dame, Penn State. I mean, you name it. Um, we literally have about seven kids playing Ivy League golf right now. Princeton, we have one. We have two in Harvard, three at Columbia, one at Yale. Uh, you know, kid, kids doing amazing things. So you know, we're really proud of the hard work they put in, that they use their golf to get themselves. You know, to me, Ivy League sports is the ultimate goal. If you can have the best education and play sports, that's a pretty cool uh, opportunity, I, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So we've pumped out lots and lots of college kids. And, you know, I think one of the things it is, like the physical stuff, because the other kids of the year never focus on their physical side, and our kids really have no choice, sadly, but they're getting the right information and they are focusing on it, right? Like if you look at any other sport other than golf, you have an off season and kids spend part of the year improving their physical abilities. The two sports I spend all, pretty much all of my time with are golf and hockey. Like right now, our hockey guys are in the gym like mad, training and training. Golf doesn't necessarily have that. So here in New Jersey, we took advantage of that we could kind of create that environment like you would have in other sports where you have an off season where you're still doing some golf, but physical is the priority. And then in season you shift to golf is the priority, but you're still doing some fitness. Right. And I think that that combination, no matter where you live in the country is smart. Um, you know, even if you live in Arizona, find some time where physical becomes more important. You know, too many 12 year olds and 14 year olds think every golf tournament they play is the masters. And then that's going to dictate their future and where they're going to succeed or not. And nothing could be further from the truth than that. Right, right. And so you mentioned finding that time. What would you say is an appropriate amount of time to really nail down on the fitness aspect for, for juniors? I would say the minimum. Again, you got you should be doing fitness all year, right? I, you know, my conversation even in season with our juniors and their parents is like, look, 
your kids at the course hitting balls for 40 hours a week, practicing, playing, whatever. I'm like, I can promise you that 37 hours a week of that and three hours of fitness outperforms 40 hours of that no fitness every single time. Yeah. Right. Like, those couple extra hours are not what makes or breaks you. Get have the physical tools also. And I can tell you that the kids who have that we work with who have achieved the highest levels are the ones who don't switch it off when golf season comes. They're the ones who stick with the fitness. They still do it. I'm mean, kids go to you know US junior amateur, come in top 10 on a Sunday, and Monday they're in the gym, right? Like the kids who who get it. Um, but I would say three months would be the minimum where doesn't mean don't play golf, but that you prioritize fitness. If you could do a little bit longer, it would be great, but I would say three months is a good number. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so with your academy, is there a, is there an age range where you're like, we start people or? Uh, we have kids jump in kind of at any age because, you know, people don't know about it or whatever. We have kids who start in their junior year in high school, and we have kids starting at 12 years old. Um, you know, we've had kids who go to college who started at, you know, 13 years old and still are here in the summers and are currently playing in college. Um, so, you know, kind of anywhere. And, you know, we don't even um, just say we're only going to take good players. Right? We tell people like, look, people call, well, my kid's not that good. I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. That's not what it's about. It, does your kid want to be good? Are they willing to listen? And are they willing to try? Because that's my, that's my criteria. There's nothing to do with your handicap is, you know, whether you're in the AJGA or you're literally a beginner. I don't, we've had beginners, kids who top the ball every single time and they get way better also. It's okay. Like I'm more interested in the human than I am the golfer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So with, with that, so what are your main priorities with these juniors, no matter what time, you know, is there different priorities at different ages or? Yeah, I'm sure we have different priorities. Obviously, the younger kids, we're not ever going to super worried about a lot of things. But And we do periodize our winter because our program basically starts in the very end of September, beginning of October, and then it runs till the end of March. And we do, you know, the beginning for a lot of kids might have a lot of corrective exercises and just fixing mobility or stability problems or whatever. And then obviously leading up as we get closer and closer, we have our strength and our power and our speed. And, you know, we're trying to get them ready to peak come the time uh, April rolls around and the sun comes out and golf time comes. But, you know, we are looking at um, age, obviously appropriate, but physiologically appropriate for each kid. Right. Again, I'm a big training age guy. What's your training age? I have 14 year olds that have high training ages and I have 14 year olds that are babies. Right. I mean, and you can be a 14 year old and still physiologically. So like we talk a lot, you know, or TPI and their juniors might talk about physiologic age. So I think there's a physiologic age. Right. You can be 14 with the body of a 12 year old. You can be a 14 with the body of a 16 or 17 year old. But you can also be 14 years old with either of those but also have the training age of an infant and a high level of a training age, right? We have 14 year old kids whose dads had them working out and doing stuff. And they were always, you know, they were, they were did gymnastics and other sports where they have them really physically strong and powerful and explosive. And we have other kids who have only played golf their whole, their whole lives. They've never done anything physical. And this is the first thing that they're doing. And then depending on their, you know, kind of physiologic age, match that with their training age, then you really can start deciding what they should do. So I, I don't think it's either, I don't think it's actual age, physiologic age, or chronological or training age. It's a blending of all of those things to figure out what you do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, during the growth spurts, especially things change a lot, but it also makes it how much experience do they have before and, and whatnot. So that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of the training, so what is the differences that you kind of see with the juniors versus you know, your typical adult? So your typical adult, like so in the United States, the average golfer is like a 54 or 56-year-old male who basically sits behind a desk all week, right? So you sit behind a desk for 40, 50 hours a week. For So if you're 55 years old, let's say, and you've been working since you're 25 and you've been behind a desk for 30 years, your training is going to look a lot different than other people. You know, I know there's a lot of people in the fitness industry. Oh, you know, just get stronger, get stronger, hit it farther, all that stuff. I'm just not that guy. I don't buy that for a second. 
I think that the number one thing you could do to those guys is help, you know, you want to get them to get them further. How about get them a bigger turn? If the turn gets bigger, mobility improves, the club travels further, you have more time to create speed. I think most men have enough strength to shoot par if they have skill. They're not physically weak, so weak that they can't shoot par from the whites. Right? If I'm playing from the members' tees, I don't know very many men who can't shoot par if they're good golfers. So I don't think that the strength is the limiting factor. I think most of them can't turn. They can't get their club in a good position. They can't get the club deep enough to have enough time to generate the speed with the strength that they actually already have and all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of those guys, I'm trying to manage mobility and stability and ability to get bigger turn and clubs in better positions. Because I think if you can do that and they have some talent, they can shoot par. You know, I, I just don't see men who are so weak yeah. that they can't hit far enough that they can do the other golf stuff properly. They can't do the golf stuff properly because they can't move. Yeah. Right? Not because yeah. they're weak. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I always use the analogy, if you don't have that mobility, it's kind of like, you know, hitting hitting into a wall all the time or trying to take a square peg into a round hole. And it's just something's going to give at some point. So old guys who sit behind a desk all day for 30 years, they don't move very well. They need to be better movers, right? You know, my younger kids who all tend to be really good movers, most of them are not very strong. They, most of them need to get stronger, right? More stable and stronger, right? Most of them, I don't have a huge mobility problems. They may have one little mobility issue in one segment or another, um, but generally they're pretty good movers, Strength, power, speed are going to be more important for them. Certainly, the girls have tons of motion. Um, I think one of the things, you know, lifting heavy for your girls is really, really important. Uh, most girls have way too much motion, <laughs> if you want to say it, right? Like, they have no mobility restrictions, right? They got to just get strong. They got to lift heavy. They got to do power work, right? And then on the other end, my tour players, you know, I, I always say, you know, wh- why we shouldn't be trying to emulate tour swings with regular people is that tour players in general have the mobility of females with the strength of males. Most men are not very mobile. Most women are not very strong and explosive, but they have great mobility, right? Tour players have both. That's why they're better than us, right? But I don't think that trying to emulate them is really smart because it's very hard for us to be like them. They're a unique combination. Yeah, and I think... Right. And I think so that tells you the importance of being assessing, okay, where is your mobility? Where is your strength? You know, what, what are, what are your, the attributes that you have that you're good at and how can you then tailor your program to, to benefit those, those. Yeah. I think you got to maximize what you're good at. Yes. You want to minimize your weaknesses, but you got to maximize your strengths. And, you know, then the conversation is, what are you trying to do with your swing? What, you know, what what is your objective from a golf perspective? Oh, I'm trying to do this with my swing. I'm trying to get my club in this position or whatever it is that you're working on. Okay, well, is there something physically limiting you from do that? Yes or no. And or is it just purely a technique problem? And if it's a technique problem, is there some type of movement drill maybe in the gym that we can help uh, foster making that change a little bit quicker? Or is it something that we should just be like, whoa, that has nothing to do with us. Leave me out of that. <laughs> right. And and all of those things, all of those answers are OK. But I think a lot of people like to be like absolute, like, oh, this stuff in the gym is no good or the gym solves it. Like it's it's there are no absolutes. Right. You, you just got to look at each person, each situation, each individual as an individual and say, for you, this is the right solution. Yeah. And so leading into that, so I recently listened to one of your podcasts on the Ben Shear Golf Podcast. I didn't mention that. that. He's a host of his own podcast there and uh, great content. One of the ones I listened to here recently, I think it was you with Will Wu. Yeah, Dr. Will Wu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You guys were talking about specialization, which has been a <laughs> big topic with, with juniors. And you guys had a little bit different take on it. And I'd love to get just have you share your thoughts a little bit with the listeners. Yeah, I, I think that specialization has been demonized. Uh, so, by the way, Dr. Will Wu is a PhD in motor learning. So, guy knows a little bit about how people learn skill and get better at skill, probably better than the rest of us. And we often talk about specialization from like an orthopedic perspective. Oh, you look at the young baseball kids blow out their shoulder or whatever. 
because of overuse, we rarely talk about it from a learning perspective. How do we learn a skill, right? Do we tell a piano playing kid, hey, don't practice piano too much. That's no good for you. No, the kid who's really good at piano practices a lot. He does the same thing over and over and over again. The amount of times you do a task is directly related to how skilled you become at that task. We cannot dismiss that factor. So basically, um, our conversation was simple, right? The conversation is we see specialization through the lens of some crazy football coach or golf parent who's standing on a range yelling at their kid to hit more balls as the rain's coming down and the tears are pouring down the poor kid's face. And then the kid gets in the car after a tournament and loses and the parents yelling at him, you know, eight year old kid is yelling at him in the car, how bad they stink. And, Oh, you can't chip or like, that's not what specialization is. That's just crazy people talk. Right. So let's separate crazy from what is specialization to me, the way we define specialization is it's, that we have an end goal, and the goal is to be great in a certain task, sport, golf, in this obviously example. The goal is to be, how do I become great at golf, right? And we can specialize, meaning everything that we do is driven around that end result. Everything we do. But that might mean, as a right-handed golfer, having your kid, like Will does, has his son play baseball left-handed. We often talk about multi-sport athlete, right? Like that's the big thing. Oh, multi-sport, 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 right? Oh, the baseball kid, like in my example, blows out his arm. Okay, well, if I want my kid to be a great pitcher, it doesn't mean he shouldn't do it. But I should also know how many pitches he should throw, when he should throw curveballs, when he shouldn't throw curveballs, like all of those things. I can still specialize to try to have him be great and still be smart and know how to manage those orthopedic issues because I know too much is a problem, right? So I can find other activities that will help still get me to my end that don't do that, right? So I think that we love all this multi-sport stuff. You know, and you go look at some of the best athletes in the world. Jordan Spieth in golf is one of the big examples. People like to give, oh, he was all state in baseball and this and that, you know, while he was, you know, while he was in high school. I would argue that those people they're not great at golf now because they played basketball and baseball in high school. They were good at basketball and baseball in high school because he's Jordan Spieth, because he's got a gift from God and hand-eye coordination and talent and all of that stuff. And you look at football players, you hear some of these football coaches we talked about, you know, um, Urban Meyer saying, all my guys were multi-athlete sports. I only like to recruit both. It's like, look, buddy. To play on your team, you have to be like six foot three with 4% body fat and be able to jump out of the building. Well, that didn't happen because the kid played baseball. That happened because God looked down on him and said, you have a gift and you're really good at it. And when you have those physical gifts at the high school level, you can pretty much play three sports and be the best kid. It's not, they're not good because of the three sports. It's because who they are, they're able to play the three sports and excel. So I think we have that backwards, number one. Number two is, like I said earlier, you can be smart and know what the pitfalls are, right? We know what the pitfalls are, and you can plan accordingly to that, how much you do, what you do, what sports are complementary. Like, to tell me that you, my kid's a multi, let's say he's trying to be a golfer, and you say that my kid's a multi-sport athlete, and he does golf, swimming, and he's a lineman in football. I'm going to say, who cares? That's not helping your kid at all. You want to tell me my kid plays some tennis, some baseball, and some golf? Okay, maybe that has some value because the motor patterning of creating rotational velocity and speed is similar. But you reduce some stretches by changing the plane, by changing the weight of the object, the velocity of the object, the angle you swing the, the object on. You're hitting something moving versus something standing still, right? Those are variances, but still within the constraints of something that's going to help you play golf, right? So multi-sport can be good if it's the right multi-sport. The wrong multi-sport is a waste of time. Like I said, if I did football linemen swimming in golf, I'm not sure how that's going to help my kid play and get any better at golf. So again, we, we've kind of taken this concept 
and we just look at it through this horrible lens of abusive, bad coaching. And what I'm saying is I can know your shoulder's going to blow out as a baseball player, and I can plan accordingly not to have that happen. I can know that too much side bending and hitting too many drivers can cause lumbar fractures in young golfers if they do too much of that, right? There's lots of things I know and I can plan accordingly for, but still following a specialization model, trying to reach that end goal of being an elite performer in that sport. I understand the psychological burnout. I understand, we understand all of that stuff. So that's what, specialization is great when in the hands of real experts. Specialization stinks when it's in the hands of a fanatical parent or a fanatical coach. So we have to stop saying specialization is bad. Bad specialization is bad. Good specialization is good. Yeah, I think in that podcast you had you had said something about like you prefer like emphasizing, you know, emphasizing yeah. golf or whatever because it's you know the goal is always let's create a better golfer at least for our for our purposes of discussion here. And so, what gets that person to be a better golfer, and how can we take away maybe the stress of some of the things that repetitive playing golf is, and tie something that's complementary to it? Yeah, like I was saying, the baseball or tennis, right? Yeah, that, my, my saying to everybody is emphasize, don't specialize. Yeah, that's okay. it. But that even that alone is part of a specialization model, right? You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. still in the, it's still, it's still with the purpose of the same end goal. So if my purpose is still the same, and if everything I do helps me get to that end goal, that's still specialization. That was his purpose, right? The goal was to do this. I believe that is part of doing that, right? So I think that's an easy way of thinking. Emphasize, don't specialize. And I think letting kids play and have fun and all that, all that stuff is great. I'm not knocking some of that stuff. But, like, you know, we have gotten married to long-term athletic development. There is no science that supports long-term athletic development. Sorry. Anybody want to pull one out and show me research on it? I mean, we dug long and hard to find one. Anything. It just is not supported by the literature. It's just not. Um, you know, and, and I think in certain level, it is by nature an oxymoron, meaning it talks about building a lifelong love and passion for sport, fitness, and athletics. That inherently is in contrast to being great. Those two things are not the exact same process. If my goal was just to get you to love it and enjoy it and have it be the funnest thing that you want to do forever, I'm probably not doing the same things I do to try to make you be great. Because you do have to be uncomfortable, unhappy, and whatever at times to be great. Because you're going to lose. And if you're not uncomfortable with losing, and that doesn't make you feel bad, not saying the coach should make you feel bad or that anybody should yell at you for not performing well, but great players internally feel bad when they don't do well. Um, that was my phone ringing. Um, but, but they have internal struggle when they don't perform well for themselves. Our job is to help them manage that and feel good and get them back on the track. But it's not all fun and games because if you don't have a competitiveness in you, you're never going to be great. You have to, like, I always tell all my athletes, the person you're competing with most in life is yourself. And the kids that I've watched over the years in any sport who are the best, they're more worried about being better than themselves yesterday than they are being better than the kid across the lawn from them or in the weight room from them. How do they get? How do they compete with themselves to be better every single day? I mean, I used to work with a lot of lacrosse players, as an example, and I would do these agility drills where you're throwing balls and they have to catch them and change direction. And there'd be kids, we'd be just me and them in the gym, and I have these hard rubber floors, and to catch the third ball, they would lay out full spread eagle, hit the ground, skid across this rubber, and come up just ripped up. And they would do it every time, no matter how rubbed up and brutal they got because they were competing with themselves and they wouldn't let that ball fall without their best effort, right? Like they have that internally. So if you have that internally, you have an opportunity to be great. But if you have that internally, there's also going to come a lot of frustration at times because you're not going to always catch it. You're not going to always win. You're going to have bad days. 
you're going to have your negative moments, right? That's just life, right? We all have those things. It's not, and it's how you manage those moments. And even with my best players in the world, I talk to them quite often about it's easy to be the best you when you're up at the top, right? All of us are our best when everything's going great. The true test for most of us is how do we react when we're down low? What do we do when we go down? Do we go, oh, poor me, you know, blah, blah, blah? Or do we like look at ourselves in the mirror and say, all right, you know what? I got to do better. I got to push harder. I got to whatever it is I need to do. I need to improve my technique. I need to be mentally stronger. I need to be physically stronger. I need to be whatever it is. I need to eat better, sleep better, meditate, pick, I mean, pick your thing that you need to do. But it's not always fun. Like I said, long-term to athletic development, it's like if you look at where they get, it's like, you know, train to train, train to compete, all that stuff. Like they don't even get you competing until it's over for most kids in this country. Yeah. Like, if you look at the age timeline, most kids are being recruited and getting their college opportunity long before they even want you to compete. So I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> right. I just don't, I don't get that. And, you know, while we do see a lot of these players and on tour who may have been able to play it, most tour players only emphasized it. They All these guys played golf since they were very young. They were all very talented. I've never heard any one of them say, oh, I, you know, I really struggled until I was 16. Like, you know, you, Bubba Watson was shooting 68 when he was 12. You know, I mean, I talk to my players. I always ask those questions. These kids at six years old can pick up a golf club and I'm not saying they score low, but they can find the middle of the club face immediately. They just can. They have a gift. Right. So we got to stop thinking of our kids as them. They're not them. If your kid can get up at six years old and flush it right down the middle and hit it square on the screws, okay, maybe your kid's going to be special. But if your kid's topping it and rolling down the fairway, he can still be really good, but he's probably not going to the PGA Tour. And I know people don't want to hear that, but that's just reality. Right. I mean, these guys are good. I mean, they're just. They're born to do it. It's like the FedEx commercial says. They were born to do it. Right? We all know people we grew up with as kids who were athletes, and you knew at eight years old the kid in your town who was just better than everybody else. And he just was better. You knew who was smarter. You knew who was better looking. You knew who was more athletic. You, you knew all of those things. And it just is what it is. That's the world. And right. But we can all be a way better version of ourselves. We're a way worse version of ourselves. And so where do you want to be on your personal continuum, right? And I think that's what all this training and all the stuff that all of us do is we're trying to help people be the best version of themselves possible, right? And I, and I think that that's what it's about. And I think done right, the difference can be dramatic. I mean, so I don't want to say it's like that I'm doing this because my hands fit in the screen, but it's like huge, right? The difference, like you sitting on the couch eating Twinkies all day and not practicing and not working at it and not having a good coach or trainer and all of that stuff is very different than you putting a lot of good hard time in working on your mental, physical, technical skills and doing all those things. The, the difference can be the difference between being a horrible player and, you know, being a division one golfer. I mean, the difference can be. Dramatic. I'm just saying at the tour level, those people are just different. They just are. I'm not saying no one comes out of nowhere. Of course there are. But like tour players themselves are outliers. And then if you're going to talk about the outliers of the outliers, you know, if that's what you're, if that's the thought you're having about your child, then you're the crazy guy in the car yelling at him about his chipping at eight years old until he cries. Like, don't, don't, don't think that way. You want to think about college or something? Sure. Great. Have that. But, you know, and you know what? If they start getting on a trajectory and things are going great, awesome. Go for it. But I, I think that if you're thinking, you know, I mean, there's parents who think at 10 years old, their kid's going to the tour. I'm like, whew. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, ooh, easy. I'm like, you know, go win, you know, go win the U.S. Junior Am. See how hard that is. I mean, go do, I mean, go win your local state thing or whatever. It, it, it's just, we got to keep our expectations real. We got to make our planning smart and then we have to execute all the way through, right? We got to execute all the way through. And, and that can be a specialization plan, but that mean all you do is hit golf balls all day, every day until you cry. I think, I think big part is, is having that expert that, that can kind of guide that process because, you know, as parents, there's, 
you know, my, my daughters are into dance. I, that's not my area of expertise. So I wouldn't be able to, if I really wanted them to become really great dancers, then you know, I wouldn't necessarily know those processes. But if I had somebody that could guide me along, that would probably be more you know, beneficial. And, and, and you got to know, know they really want it. They have to want it. Mm-hmm. My, my son's a very good hockey player. Very good. I mean, not like super great, but very good. But he, and he likes to work hard, but there's still another gear of hard. And I've never pushed him because I don't need that in my life because I get to do that with plenty of people every single day. I don't need to fill that void for me through him, right? And there's times where we have arguments where he'll be like, you should have pushed me harder. I said, no, you have to want it yourself. And it's one thing I pushed him a bit when he was younger, but when you get into your kids, 12, 13, 14, and they're not saying, hey, can I go to the gym? Hey, can I go to the range? Hey, like, and they're not pushing for it. And maybe his problem was access was too easy, right? We have him. We have everything. Like, he, anytime he wants, he can have it. So maybe that, in a way, was a negative for him. But I wasn't going to be like, let's go to the gym. Let's go shoot pucks. Let's go do whatever. I just wasn't going to be that guy, right? And I think that parents, at some point, you need to, at some age, just see what's inside your kid. And because you can't make that. The kid can only make it if it's inside them, not if it's inside you. And it's hard as parents sometimes to accept it's not their most passionate thing. It's okay. right? You know what? Golf's a game you have for life. If you can learn at a young age to play this game and you have it forever, it will serve you well. Golf will serve you well through life. So there, it wasn't wasted by any imagination. It has value. It's a game the kid will play for life. But at the same time, greatness comes at a sacrifice. And if you want that sacrifice for your kid, you got to both want it, not just you. right? And, and there's less kids than you think, even kids who I have in my program. They just want it to the point of being like good on their high school team. Mm-hmm. There's other kids who want to be on the tour. It's very, their, their behavior is so different. It's incredible. And these are all kids who are still have a coach. They're coming to my program. Like they're doing stuff, but I can even I can in five minutes go down and go. Okay, well this person has a real chance, and this person you know will be a nice high school player, or maybe can go play D three college or whatever. But is never going to like big time D one or going any you know play on a mini tour or whatever because they don't have this. You know, it's it's simple. The kid who vet, and for me, the kid who doesn't show up to work out in the summer doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. They don't have it. Like they love they love playing golf. But they don't love doing the work to be great at golf. And I understand that not everybody loves the fitness side of it, especially golfers. Like my hockey guys tend to like working out a lot more than my golfers like, right? Like I just think it's a different animal type of, you know, in the works. But the ones who really want to be great understand that it's part of the process to be good. Like it's not, you're not going to like golf parts. Some people don't like practicing putting. Some people don't like practice chipping. Some like whatever. It's like you're not going to like all of the elements that go into being great. But if you want to be great, you have to do all of the elements. And that's kind of one of the things. One of the tour players I started with last fall, it was a European tour player who's now playing mostly on the the, uh, U.S. tour. I just said to him, I said, hey, are you more talented than Rory McIlroy or Justin Rose or all these guys? He's like, no. He goes, but I think I'm pretty talented. I go, do you think you're doing all the things and you're as prepared as well as they are? He's like, probably not. I go, well, then why do you think you should be able to compete with him? Mm-hmm. If you're not more talented and you're not at a minimum equally prepared, why do you believe that you should be able to play with them? And I asked that to all my juniors. Go look at your AGGA points and your whatever hurricane tour, wherever you're playing in. The kids who are beating you, are you way more talented than them? Are you as prepared as them? And you got, if you want to be better, unless you're way more talented, you better be more prepared. And that includes doing all of the things necessary. And very few kids are doing that. And I think that's a simple rule to live by. Are you as prepared as the next person who's beating you? And when you look at Rory McIlroy or Justin Rose, I mean, these guys have incredible teams, super smart people. Nothing is left to chance. They're doing everything. And, oh, by the way, they're also really, 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 really talented. Right? So, like, you're going out on the PGA Tour. You want to beat those guys. 
how can you do it? And I think it's one of the big issues. I mean, I'm, you know, maybe I get in trouble for saying it, but I think it's one of the biggest problems with European tour mindset. European tour guys want to make a lot of money to go out and hire guys like me to help them get better. Or and not just me, but you know, a sports psychologist, uh, what whatever they need on their team. They feel like they have to earn more money to go spend that money. Yeah. Where the guys in the PGA tour kind of spend it as an investment and say, hey, if I want to compete, I have to do it like any business. If you're going to open up a gym or a therapy studio or whatever, well, you put your money out first before you get a return. You got to rent the space, you got to buy the equipment, you got to open the door, right? You got you got to spend money to make money. So a lot of these guys in the European tour with that mindset, I think, never get where they should be because they're waiting to have the money to spend instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to get a return on my investment. I'm going to spend an extra hundred grand this year. But guess what? If I make 400 grand more, that was good. But they're waiting to get the result without being having the preparation. And I think that trickles down from the top level all the way to younger kids. And I get it. it. costs money. I hear you. You want a good coach? It costs money. You want a good trainer? It costs money. I mean, like that sadly is truth. And yes, there's always some outlier kid who's just so talented. He can do it by himself. Congratulations. I mean, that's great. I mean, but the majority of people, if your kid wants to go to college or play golf in college, you know what? You're going to need to find yourself a real swing coach. You're going to need to find yourself a real trainer. Because in today's world, you that's not just the tour anymore. You need that at youth if you want to be playing college golf now. Like all the good college kids have trainers, you know, good coaches are working hard. I mean, they're preparing not exactly like a tour player, but not much below, right? right? They have other obligations, but they're doing the work. And if you think that you're going to make it without doing that, your kid better be very, very special. Because there's a lot of special ones doing the work also. And when the special one does the work and you're special without the work, you lose. Right. I mean, so it's simple, but I, I think that people don't want to just think about it in such a linear way. Um, it's like, am I prepared as much as this person? Like they want to blame it on so many other things. In reality, did you go to sleep on time? What did you eat on the golf course? Like I, mean, I go, you know, what we teach our kids is a big, not just, hey, how to get stronger, faster, more mobile, whatever. It's like, what did you eat? What time did you eat? How did you eat it? What time did you go to bed? Like, I mean, all of these things that play a huge role. I mean, how many kids? nutrition on the golf course is one of the biggest problems they have. And they wonder why they fall. Oh, I was playing so good. And then, you know, I blew up coming in the last hole. Then you say, well, what'd you eat? You're like, oh my God, like you have no glycogen in your system. Your brain functioning is turning off. Like you, you have no chance. Like you're basically setting yourself up to fail. Like, well, I'm not hungry on the course. It's not about you being hungry. It's about you performing and you have to feed the system. Right. So there's so many things that we can do when you have the right coaches and the right people around you to help them have a better opportunity. And I think too many people are just kind of winging it. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to honor your time. Uh, so this is getting getting on going on pretty well. But thank you so much for your comments. Just real fast. Let's uh, wrap up with just uh, what's one takeaway you would like for our listeners to to apply this week? Yeah, I think that the most important thing is thinking about how prepared are you really, right? How prepared are you? What are you really doing physically, technically, mentally, nutrition, whatever it is? Like, how prepared are you compared to the people you're competing against, right? And if you're an older, regular golfer and you're just trying to improve your game, what are you doing? If you're if you're the third 40-hour behind the desk guy, look, that's just not going to work, like, and every year, when it comes 31 years and 32 years, 33 years, your game's going the wrong way. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, the conversations that I have with people call and say, yeah, I was a, I used to be like a six three years ago, and now I'm a 15. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Like, I mean, you can see it coming. And unfortunately, you'll hit a point in life and age in your you know late 40s, some point in your 50s, where the wheels will come off very quickly if you don't do something about it. Yeah. So be prepared. And understand, are you preparing properly? Very nice. Awesome. Uh, and then who else should who should we have on the podcast? Oof, that's a good question. I mean, so who's your full audience? Parents or golfers? Mostly golfers. Mostly golfers. Um, you know, I love having coaches who coach regular people. Mm-hmm. Like, go find yourself a guy. I'll give you a great one. Jason Carbone, you know, Jason Carbone, 
Jason Carbone's a top 50 teacher. He now just moved out to the Midwest, but he was the director of instruction at Baldestral for a long time. He's an incredible teacher, works with a lot of high-level juniors, had that works with some tour players, but basically all day stands in a country club teaching regular people how to play golf. And I think that we got to understand better how regular people should play golf and stop reading about what tour players are doing and how they swing in and the research on tour players, understanding how regular people, what regular golfers can do to play golf better. I think is really not being talked about in our industry enough. And I think it's an important topic because most people, in my opinion, are going the wrong way, not the right way. They're trying to be as close as they can to being a tour player versus just finding what can work for them. And how do you take a guy who sits behind the desk, like we said, or behind the driving wheel or whatever, how does he play his best golf? And it may have nothing to do with what Adam Scott does. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it does have nothing to do with what Adam Scott does. So some teachers like that who are kind of big name teachers who do work with high-level players, but like myself, still are in the trenches with regular people, not just working with tour players. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ben, for uh, coming on today. Uh, before we wrap up, how can we follow you or support your work? Yeah, so I have my own podcast, the Ben Shear Golf Podcast. I actually have a bunch out recently. I had one that came out today, I think, with Mike Gervais, who's a high-performance sports psychologist. I think probably the smartest mental guy in the world. I had one come out, I think, last week or the week before with Chuck Cook. If you want to hear, you know, a guy who's obviously worked with many major winners, PGA Tour. I've had Sean Foley on. I've had lots of really great teachers. I've done some myself. I think my very first episode, if you're a physical guy, I really talked about speed and power. And I broke it down by age group, male, females, on a really user-friendly, simple, regular people way. Um, you, so you can check me out on my podcast. You can check me out on Instagram. Uh, I have a Ben Shear Golf and a Ben Shear account, Ben.Shear on Instagram and at Ben, and ben Shear Golf. I'm on Facebook, all of that kind of nonsense. You can kind of find me. And then our website is Bencher Golf there. And if anybody is interested, obviously, in online training uh, for themselves or for their junior or anybody as well, uh, those are things that we do offer. So we work with people all around the world. So what's cool is, you know, today's modern technology, we can help people anywhere. And I think that that's a really awesome opportunity. And now with uh, everything going on with the gym world, we're doing more and more of that. So if any of your listeners are, are interested, Check it out. Thank you. We'll have all that information in, in the show notes uh, that Ben just mentioned. And this is the Golf Under Power podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Ben. And thank you to all of you for listening. Have a great day. Right. Hey, guys. If you enjoyed this content, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes so that we can get this in front of more people. Thank you. Do you want to take your fitness to the next level? Join our Golf Fitness Tips Facebook group to learn more about how you can improve your fitness and improve your golf game by helping your potential through mobility, strengthening, and wellness tips. Again, our Facebook group is Golf Fitness Tips. We'll see you there. Have a good one.